Welcome to Mentors on the Mic podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Simone Miller, a New York City native actress with credits in film, television, off-Broadway, and commercials. Every Monday, I'll bring you an incredible mentor in the entertainment industry, focusing on how they started and how they moved up to where they are today. My goal is to encourage you to follow your dreams and give you a playbook on how to get there. Thanks for listening and let the episode begin. Welcome back. Happy Mentor Monday, everyone. The mentor that I get to introduce you to this week is a an incredible director. Her name is Bethany Rooney. And Bethany has directed more than 230 episodes of primetime network television. Most recently, Law and Order, Organized Crime, Chicago PD, Station 19. Her credits include critically acclaimed series like Desperate Housewives, Allie McBeal, Brothers and Sisters, the CW drama, The Originals, Pretty Little Liars. Name a show she may most likely have worked on it. Um, she's also the author, a co-author of a book called Directors Tell the Story, Master the Craft of Television and Film Directing. Um, and I did ask her a lot about her process as a director, um, how she approaches a script or a show when she only has maybe, you know, seven days of prep time prior to the episode. And she also talks a lot about her involvement in casting a project and advice for actors, advice for other directors. And I learned a lot from her. And we also had a lightning round of some of the shows that I love that she's directed. And I wanted to hear her thoughts on it. So without further ado, here's Bethany Rooney. Thank you so much, Bethany. Welcome to Mentors on the Mic. I'm so, so happy to talk with you today. And I always like to start off these interviews with what was your first role in the entertainment industry? I was a secretary. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, these days, uh, such people are called production assistants. At the time, though, I was a secretary. Mm. So I, and also, I'm so ancient that uh, I typed all the scripts by hand. We didn't even have computers. Oh, wow. So I answered all the phones and typed all the scripts and learned as much as I could. Were you running around on set or was it mostly an office type job? Well, I had access to set and I would go there as much as I possibly could. I, I loved being there. But at the time when I started, this was on a show called The White Shadow in mm. 1978. I was fresh out of college and uh, there were very few of us in the office at that time. In fact, for the longest time, I was the only assistant there. Mm. So I couldn't leave the office very much, you know. Yeah. Did you know, my job. Did you know what you wanted to do? Did you have an idea you wanted to be a director? Did you just know you want to be in the industry around film? Um, I don't think that I knew exactly um, because I had to see what people did. You know, I knew titles. I knew there were producers. I knew there were directors. I knew there were writers, but I didn't really know what they did, you know? So I experimented with writing first, but then came to realize who I am as a person is better suited to being a director. <laughs> and so then the first, I believe your first directing episode was for um, St. Elsewhere in 1985 around. Is that, that is correct? correct. How mm -hmm. did you get that one? How did you get it? was for the same bosses, one? Bruce Paltrow and Mark Tinker wow. were the producers of The White Shadow and went on to co-create St. Elsewhere at that time. 
I jumped from being Bruce's and Mark's assistant to associate producer of St. Elsewhere, which meant I supervised all the post-production all by myself. That's a lot. (laughs) Well, it was great. And I loved it. Um, I did not have final picture cut. They did, but then I would take it through its whole process. So, um, scoring, sound mixing, color correcting, all of that and delivering to the network. And that's where I learned how to visually tell a story in post-production, Yeah, you know, because I would watch cuts of the episodes over five seasons and understand, did the director tell the story or not? And if it didn't seem that they did, could we manipulate the film to tell the story? So that was a fantastic education for directing. And then the other part was on uh, advice. I took an acting class for about five, five oh, seasons on and off. Be really happy. Yeah, it was great. Gordon Hunt was the teacher of the scene study class. He was magnificent and um, taught me so much standing in the actor's shoes and understanding what they go through and, you know, caring for them. And then the vocabulary that actors use. So between those two aspects of what I was doing during the time that I was associate producer, I feel like I was pretty as prepared as one can be for your first directing slot. That's amazing. I I always feel, and I've talked about it a lot on other episodes that, you know, directors should take acting lessons and actors should take directing lessons. Like, I feel like there is this element classes. I feel like there's this element of a, being able to communicate, but B, knowing what the other person's perspective is and being able to have that influence how you come to set and what you bring and, mm-hmm. and know that you're, uh, you know, what the other person's going through. So I, I think that's incredible. I know you worked on a couple episodes of St. Elsewhere. Did you work on one or two things there before going on to your next gig? Or were you able to take that first episode of directing St. Elsewhere and go somewhere else? It's hard to tell when you, when I was like, hard to tell from IMDb. Yes. Yeah. I, given my slot to direct in the season four of St. Elsewhere, I later directed another episode that season. I continued to associate produce in season five and I directed two. So a total of, uh, or maybe one, because then I directed one in season six. But by that time I had left because I went to Bruce and said, hey, after five seasons, I'm still the associate producer. I think I should get a bigger Mm -hmm. credit. A producer credit. And he was, I guess you would say old fashioned. And, you know, today there's this proliferation of titles. And he said, well, if you're going to associate produce still, then you're, that's what you do. You're the associate producer. You're not a producer. And I being young and quite full of myself said, well, if that's the case, um, I'm going to quit and move on. And he said, well, okay, I'm going to, I'll give you a directing slot for next season. So everybody knows that we still like you and uh, you know, good luck. And then I thought, oh gosh, I've just made the biggest mistake I could ever make. But it turned out that that season what year we talk, we're talking 87, 88. I was employed by Jay Tarsus on a show called the slap Maxwell story mm-hmm. with Dabney Coleman, which was a single camera half hour. And I ended up doing a lot of those in that first season. And it was a great, great learning experience. And I made a zillion mistakes as one would just starting out. But the reason it, I learned so much is I was all by myself, meaning, okay. Jay Tarsus didn't come to set because he and Dabney Coleman didn't get along. And so there I was directing and learning and having an absolute blast. I was so blessed and so lucky. 
Well, I mean, first of all, I think it says a lot about you that you were someone who advocated for yourself and then put it on the line, if you will, risked it, right? You know, you, you gave them sort of this, this uh, not ultimatum, but kind of advocated for yourself. And, and yeah, that didn't go maybe as well as you wanted it to. <laughs> no, eventually it, it panned out. And I do feel like it's, it's an important thing, I think, for people to learn from right? That, you know, there are, I'm sure there are a lot of people and, and credit to them that stay within where they are because it is too risky to ask for what they want. It is. This is a hard business, you know, yeah. as soon as you're out of a job, which could happen through no fault of your own, but just the right. show gets canceled. Well, it's hard to find the next job, you know, cause it's a business of who do you know? And exactly. Well then, so for the slap Maxwell story, how did you get that one? Was it just that you knew that person or that's a, that's funny because Bruce had dismissed me and he and Jay had been very good friends at one time, but they had had a falling out. So <laughs> I think that I got hired initially because it was Jay's way of, of saying F you to Bruce. I'm going to, if you're going to let her go, I'm going to hire her. I'm, I think that was a part of it. Yeah, that works. <laughs> yeah. You know, Hey, you'll take yeah. it. Yes, exactly. You know, all that personal behind the scenes stuff does influence everything in this yeah. business. Anyway, it certainly worked out and Jay was a great boss and allowed me to learn on his dime. I've always said, should I ever win anything? I have to thank Bruce and Jay because they were the starters of my career. And so, yeah, what about the next gig? Or like at some point, do you get an agent now that you have all this, like this resume essentially of all these things or, or do you just still have to keep hustling and find your own? I really lucked out there again because- an agent, a baby agent saw my first, I don't know, actually, if it was my first or my second episode of St. Elsewhere and tracked me down and said, um, I'd like to represent you. So I had an agent in the agency from the beginning of my career, Excellent. which is wonderful. And so I guess, you know, the next thing I'd like to ask, because obviously you've just, you've worked on so many shows, some of them for one episode, some of them for multiple episodes. So what I'm always curious about directors in their process when they get a new show or a gig. So mm -hmm. do you have a process when you get a new show? Do you watch a lot of episodes? Do you like to come in with like a certain, I know, you know, I've read some things that you've said that you do a lot of like weekend and night sort of just preparing for it. What's your process? When I get a show that uh, I haven't done before, it depends where the show is in its process, if it's new or if it's been established. Right. But let's just say it's one that's uh, been established. I watch probably not as many as I should. I listen, it's, <laughs> there's only so much time. <laughs> um, my preference really is to read the scripts because once I've watched a few shows mm -hmm. and I understand visually what the show, how, how it works and what it likes, then I want to read the scripts and I ask for generally the at least the five scripts leading up to the one that I will direct mm -hmm. because the and the reason I'd rather read the script is because then I'm envisioning it through my imagination rather than what the director of the episode did and it helps me to learn about the characters and it helps me to learn how the writers work how they are what the format of their script is scripts are I guess so that's it I watch about five episodes and I read about five scripts and have a sense of the show and then I show up to work there and when you're referencing night and weekends is because I feel that every script needs to be fully understood 
and blocked and shot listed the entire script before I begin shooting day one. Mm. So in the seven days of prep period, a lot of that is taken up with the activities that are necessary for the show. That is location scouting, casting, department head meetings, you know, so that everybody, every department can begin to prepare that script, Mm -hmm. which doesn't leave a lot of time for my work. So then, so basically what I'm saying is the prep time of an episode is all involving, all encompassing, all, you know, I'm completely focused on that script. And therefore, when day one of shooting happens, I feel so free and so happy and so Mm. grateful and so just joy. I wake up in the morning going, I get to shoot today. (laughs) Even after all this time, the hundreds of episodes that I've done, I feel like it's, I think I've gone off track here on your question, but I think it's the best job in the world for me Mm. and for anybody, if they're predisposed to have the qualities of a good director. Anyway, I I feel very happy that I still have this career and still am in in demand and still get to do what I love to do. Me too. I love that. And then when you look through a script, is there some sort of checklist in your head? Like I imagine because you've done this so many times, you've analyzed so many scripts, you've blocked and, and sort of, you know, sort of, uh, you know, just analyze these scripts. Do you have some sort of checklist or some sort of process where you look through and you go, okay, so they have this, they don't have this, they like this, they don't like, you know, there's something that goes through your head when you go through a script of what you're looking for in particular that might be of interest to people. Yeah. I developed something called the director's diagram, which I co-wrote a text, a directing textbook with yes. my friend and I'm fellow. I'm going to put it in the show notes of this episode. Okay. Mary Lou Belli and I wrote a book called Directors Tell the Story. Um, there are two editions. So if anyone is to get it, they should get the second edition. A few years back, maybe, I don't even know when it was, I was directing a show called Brothers and Sisters. Mm, and that in that, yeah, it was great. And in that particular episode, because it was a mid-season finale, it was a big one there were seven storylines in it because there were a lot of characters in that show. There was a lot of characters to serve. I could not wrap my head around what each character was doing. Where were they? What was their storyline? How did their storyline progress? So this director's diagram is a way to outline a script because the director's job is to go to study it all completely to find out what was the seed that inspired the writer or as I like to say, the acorn, because it it grows into this gigantic oak tree of a script where it's hard to see through the foliage to know what the structure is and what the initial idea is and how that was developed. So by outlining the script, what that allows me to do is find the themes and threads of the entire script. For me, I could read it and read it and read it and still not really be able to find those threads necessarily mm-hmm. unless I break it down in this way. So yes, that's what I do. The director's Excellent. diagram. Yeah, oh, it, helps it. Me, it helps me see the script as the writer began it and envisioned it and moved it along. I, I think that's really important, especially since there's just so many shows right now with full ensemble casts, a lot that you've worked on, a lot of the Shonda Rhimes shows, the Dick Wolf shows, there's 
so many storylines. And so, I mean, I'm sure that that's something that we should all consider when looking through a script as well. So in uh, in a recent blog post, which I, I wanted to plug your blog on your uh, website because I found them so interesting, but in okay. a recent blog post, you discussed like the extra footage that was asked for you by the producer as a guest director and that you didn't really think it was necessary to, to have that extra coverage to tell the story that you wanted to tell. And you were asked by the producers of a TV show for this extra coverage and were scolded when you didn't deliver this enough. And so you wrote in your blog, as a guest director, I want to shoot the story as that I'd imagined it and deliver footage that is specific and full, both in performance and camera work. But what the producers want is enough different angles to sculpt the scenes as they see the story, complicated by the necessity of conforming the show to a specific running time. So if I and my director hubris, I love that, dare to deliver only one clear way for the scene to be cut, I'm failing them. So I got a lot from that, not just in your process, but just the careful balance between either a showrunner or the producers or the creative team of a show and yourself. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I wanted to ask you just a couple questions. So one, like, what is your hope in, at some point? Is it to achieve that balance of your vision of an episode and what they're requesting? Is it to have more agency and authority down the line on the project that you can have final say on something? You know, that that's, that's where I wanted to start. I was just curious. Um, well, a director never has that final cut. The producer does, the showrunner does. Really, the showrunner does with notes from the network that they either respond to or don't. A director doesn't have that agency. So that one must accept that fact when you're directing television and uh, work within that system. So while I think it's my job to, they hired me to direct this show and you give the same script and the same crew and the same cast, all the elements of an episode to 10 different directors, you'll get 10 different shows because it goes through my imagination. It goes through my heart. I make choices. I make thousands of choices. The other nine directors would make thousands of choices and how it's shot would be different. Might be tiny, tiny differences, but I don't think so. I, I, it would feel different. It would feel different. so. So they hired me to do that. And yet, they hired me to direct something that they can take from me and turn it into how they see it. Mm. So hopefully I'm on the same wavelength that they are, you know? And like I said, in that, in that sentence, a lot of it has to do with in broadcast television, delivering it to time to the second. So let's say it's 42 minutes and 20 seconds if I deliver the director's cut is 45 minutes and 20 seconds, they have to take three minutes out. Where are they going to take it out? Well, it depends on what they think is important as opposed to maybe as opposed to what I think is important. Mm. And in, in order for them to do that, I have to provide them with enough coverage that if they, let's say they want to mm. cut off the front end of a scene and pop, come into the scene in what was the middle of the scene did I allow for that? Did I give them the footage that would allow them to do that? You know, that's, it's a really interesting thing that I guess I never thought about, right? Obviously, because it's not something, it's not in my wheelhouse. It's not in my perspective, but that's so interesting to think because 
you know, you are, like you, you wrote, hired for your vision and for your interpretation of something. And, you know, as an actor, I can a little bit sort of relate to that, this idea you come in and as an actor, you have to make choices about something and someone sure. else could play the same role, the same lines completely differently, right? A hundred percent. And it's our job to come in with an, a vision, a perspective and be like, well, I hope you guys like this one, right? But at the same time, there is a greater vision for the show. There is a greater consistency that a showrunner, the creative team have to be mindful of. And uh, I, it's an interesting balance. I guess my next question would then be, if there really is less agency in television for a director, do you want to do more film at any point? Or, you, you know, this is your medium and you're, yep, I love that. I'm shaking my head now. Yeah. You know why? Because... I get to do what I love to do all the time. For example, in this year, 21 to 22, I directed eight episodes of Primetime Network, our drama shows. That's a lot of shooting. And that's what I love to do is tell oh, those stories. And, interesting. and as my husband tells me, I like to be cosseted. That is, I like to land in this warm nest of support, support that is a show that has all the department heads in place and all the wheels are turning and all they are there for is to help me tell the story. Mm. Whereas if I were to do an indie feature, none of that structure would be there. We could create, we, whoever myself and the other producers would be, could create that structure from scratch. And that might be exciting, but it might be horrible too. And I don't know. I'm just a, I, just I doesn't always, excite you. No, I, I, I am a network television, broadcast television baby. And now I'm a broadcast television elder statesman. And thankfully, <laughs> I still love it. I still, I think it's an amazing thing to tell these stories in 42 minutes mm. and to tell them really well. We do 22 episodes, which is a big slog. I mean, each show does 20 or the ones that I do do 22 episodes. Yeah. So I may get, you know, a script that's not sparkly. <laughs> I've heard people before use the baseball analogy. If you're doing 22 episodes, you might get three home runs and th three triples, et cetera, down, down, down. Mm. Well, I might get one of those that's a bunt single, you know, and then it's my job to lift it up, to mm. make it as, as good as it can possibly be. And that's exciting too. Sometimes yeah. the best work that I do is to raise a, a C quality script to become a B plus episode that takes the most work and other people and vision. Yeah. And the other, and you know, viewers will look at it and go, well, that was okay. That was pretty good. And I'll go, Hey, <laughs> you should have seen the the first thing I got. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> where we start. I love that because I have talked to other directors on this podcast, episodic television directors, and a lot of them are itching to do film but that's not really where the opportunities are for them. But I do really understand what you're saying, which is that to do what you love, it really does land, you know, to do more of what you love, it really lands in episodic TV, the way it's structured, the, the way you're probably on set more, right. In a mm -hmm. lot of ways, because, you know, if you're filming something, yeah, it could be a month, but you're working on that for months prior and months after, and right. if, you know, this part of that whole process and, you know, is, is what you love to do, then it makes sense to concentrate that. And, and the television does that. So also I, I get that to perspective. pop around. Sorry, I get to pop around from show to show to show. And, yeah. and that 
is exciting in and of itself, you know, yeah. I, I, it takes um, three and a half to four weeks for me to do an episode of a show. Yeah. And then I'm going to go somewhere else. And now that's exciting again, because it's different people, different stories, different cast, different DPs to work with. So it's continually energizing because of new, 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 yeah. you know, throughout the season. And then, so that's so the three, four week process I'm interested in. So you get, let's say three, four weeks on one given episode. Um, how much of that is prior to filming, right? So do you get a one week lead in time, usually two weeks, sometimes what's the amount of time you get prior to having to start? Being well, the set? DGA contract is seven days of prep for an eight day now, sometimes eight or nine or 10 day shoot, but the the contract that we all work under is a 15 day contract. So seven days of prep for eight days of shoot. Mm. And that is adhered to by everyone. So the question really is, do you get the script? You're supposed to get it the day or the night before your first day of prep. Okay. Hopefully and ideally that happens, but it doesn't always. So, but let's just say you do get it. Then you and the art department, let's say, have seven days to create to build sets, you know, you might be creating something huge and wonderful and define locations and define locations and to cast the guest actors. And now in COVID times, you have to cast them earlier so they can be tested. Tested. Mm -hmm. Um, So that seven days, as you can imagine, is a a, a really fast paced um, time to get everything done, you know, and that's exciting too. Yeah, absolutely. Super concentrated, but very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'd like to ask, cause I think it's different for different people. How often do you get, um, the opportunity to help or to be part of the conversations and casting guest actors for any of these television shows? Um, well, per our contract, the DJ contract, um, let, let's just talk about it in terms of getting links, because that is the way that it happens. Yeah. Nowadays. Yeah. Yep. Let me backtrack a little bit to say if an actor um, auditions for the part and you, you kind of like it, but think you could give them some information, i.e. the same process as used to be where they would come into the room and audition, you can ask for a callback on Zoom and be with that person on Zoom. But most of the time, especially for larger guest parts, it's looking at their reels and because they'll say they don't audition. Well, that's tricky because clearly they're not being specific to the part that I'm looking for, Um, but yet it's how it works now. And I think a lot of actors lose out on parts because their reel doesn't fit what I'm looking for. So how do I know they can do it except to say, well, I know they're a good actor, so I believe they can, you know? Yeah. But to your question, once the link is sent out, the director is supposed to be the first person to respond because if someone else responds, let's say the writer of the episode, it sort of sets a track that's might be hard to overcome because they've already mm-hmm. indicated I like person X for this part. But if the director is responding, are you kidding me? I don't see person X at all. I, that isn't how I saw the part. I like person A. Well, So the director is supposed to respond first, which then sets the track kind of for Mm -hmm. everybody to respond to. We don't like everything else. We don't have final choice. 
the right. showrunner does. But what happens is the director ends up having a conversation. If the showrunner has a different choice than the director, a couple of things can happen. One, you can ask the casting director to see more choices. Two, you could have a callback, you know, with both actors. Three, you can negotiate, you know, I'll give you your choice on this other part if you give me my choice on this part. Because the showrunner knows and remembers that the director is the person who is <laughs> given the, the possibility to work with this person. And so it's important for the director to feel comfortable with the person that we're casting. Then if it's a stunt casting, that is, you know, somebody with a big name coming in on the part, then there's nothing, the director yeah. has no input on that. That's yeah, a that makes network sense. thing. Uh, okay. So on that note, any tips for actors who are listening to this podcast? Well, you know, when you look through tons of self-tapes, there's yeah. a couple things <laughs> That, that make your case stronger. One is if it, if you're, you as an actor are enthusiastic about doing it, sometimes I think, why did you even bother? Because you, you're not putting a lot of energy into it. You're not, it's not produced well. And I know that puts a lot of, a lot of pressure on actors, but the better the sound is, the more that helps. When, when an actor introduces themselves to say their name and where they're, where they are, let's say, just even in that short thing, if you can give me a little sense of who you are, because this is you as you saying hello. So trying to engage me authentically doing that is really good. Then I would say, please make sure that you're giving me a close-up of you, not something wider than that. Mm-hmm. Make strong choices, not the non-choice of sort of middle of the road. Because for myself and for directors who know what they're doing, strong choices are at least an indication that that actor has chops. And if they didn't make the right choice, we can ask them to read again, you know, or do a call back Zoom. Just present yourself in the best possible way. Make sure that you have light on your face and and that the sound is good and that you want to be doing it. That's it, basically. I love all of that. What I was going to follow up and ask you about was when you talked about, you know, saying your name and height and all that stuff, which is the slate. We're often, at least in New York, I can only speak for, for New York casting directors. We're often told, make it as simple as possible. Don't give more information than what we ask. You know, this is, this is something we might not even send if needed to the, to our creative team, et cetera. It depends on the project, I think. And so often you'll get, if we ask for name, height, agency, please don't give us anything else. We don't want to see, this is not a place for you to shine and see your personality, but you like that. That's something that you prefer. You, you enjoy seeing a little bit more of the actor. For goodness sakes, at least you can smile at me, you know? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you don't have to just sort of dryly recite that stuff. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting that you say anything more or add anything to it. I'm just saying, let me see you Got it. as opposed to, you know, then there's a, the slate is its own piece. And now we're coming on to the, the actual read. Now you're in character. Now you're not you, you're the character. So that's all I'm asking. Just let me yeah. see. Do you believe that slates should be done in character of the, no, I do not. I love that. I love that. Excellent. Thank you very much for that. So I've interviewed other amazing directors and and other amazing female directors as well in the podcast. And one particular said that she felt that there are times, multiple times that she's directed uh, an episode of a show 
And either someone on the cast or the crew have said she's the first that season or in the entire show that's female. So she's the first female director that season or that show. Do you get that a lot as well? Because I just wanted just wanted to check in if that's something that, you know, is in multiple people's experience. It used to be. But I think in the last five years, things have changed a lot, especially for people of color. There's just this, this huge push for diversity and diversity can include women, but a person of color who is a woman has like a double check mark and is more likely, you know, to, to fit the slot. <laughs> so, yeah. so now white women are more in the category with white men, mm. you know, however, I have had people a fair amount in the past say you're the first woman director I've had. It doesn't happen very much anymore though. That's good. And what what advice would you give to other aspiring female directors or, you know, that, that are, that are discouraged in any respect? Do you have any advice for them? Discouraged in terms of getting the job? Yeah. Discouraged in the, you know, in an industry that I think often favors men, right? So do you think about that at all? Or is it important not to think about that stuff? In my own life, it has been important not to think about that Mm. because just because there's a general feeling within the business doesn't mean that has to impact me just because, you know, white men are basically who get hired doesn't mean I'm not going to get hired. I'm me. I have, I bring a lot to it. I have a path in my life. I have a destiny and a fate and it's the same philosophy as when, you know, as a new director on a show, everybody comes up to you and says, this actor is difficult or this DP doesn't like women directors or whatever. And okay. I hear that. I take it in and then I throw it away because I'm going to have my own individual unique experience. Yeah. I hear the general wisdom and same going back to hiring and there's a general wisdom to it. I just don't feel like it needs to apply to me. I don't need to take it on as a a pressure or a an element that will prevent me from working. Now, I know that may, for somebody who's struggling to start out, that may sound like hubris on my part in terms of, sure, after she's directed for a thousand years, it seems like, of course, she can feel that way. Yeah, I disagree. Um, yeah, I think it's a great, I, and that's why I sort of, in a way, phrase the question that way. I do think that there is you know, I wasn't surprised when you said that, when you said that that's not something that you try to keep in mind in that you understand that that's there and there's a reality there. But I do think that, you know, that contributes a lot to your overall success and your like longevity of your career and not having to think about that perspective very much and that not having it affect. And, and, and I loved your words of, you know, yourself, you know, what you bring to the table. And I think I think that's important advice for people to focus on. Um, and uh, and I, I think that's super helpful. Thank you. I, yeah. I have come up with a phrase for that that helps me all the time. When, I'm, when I find myself backing into fear or I'm not enough or there isn't a job for me or do I remember how to do this if it's been a while. Um, and that is to focus on what it is I have to give, not mm. what I want to get. Because what does everybody want to get? They want to get the pat on the back. They want to get asked back. They want, you know, the next job. uh, That's not under my control. What is under my control is what I have to give. And 
my approach to directing is my own and it's based on kindness and respect and storytelling. And, you know, I think I come from a good place and I want to give that goodness to the people that I work with. So if I focus on that, what those things that I bring, the fear takes a, a, a back seat because, because that's what I can control. So well said. Um, and I think also that circles back to other advice you could give to actors, because as an actor, that's something that we can focus on as well. This yeah. idea, I mean, it's applicable throughout, you know, the rest of the, the whole industry, but specifically as actors, we can focus in an audition, for instance, on what we can give as opposed to what we can get, meaning the job, you know? So I think that that's an incredible perspective and one that maybe will help eliminate fear for people. So I love that advice. Thanks. So is there a show project that you love coming back to? And I say that knowing that a lot of your most recent credits <laughs> and a lot of the stuff that you're mostly doing right now is, is Dick Wolf project, mm-hmm. um, but you've also done a lot of other projects within the same showrunner in the same realm, um, mm-hmm. Shondaland included, for instance, do you have particular shows or projects? Is there a reason why you're doing a lot of Dick Wolf stuff now? I'm curious, or a lot of New York based shows I've noticed mm-hmm. I throw in the blacklist there, bull there. Those are all New York based shows. So I was curious about that. I'm kind of bummed that I don't get to work at home in Los Angeles. It just hasn't come my way. But on the other hand, I'm really grateful in recent years yeah. to, to get in the Wolf family because, because it's a, it literally is a family of shows. Not that, not that I've never met Dick Wolf. It's not like I can call him up and say, daddy, how you doing? Um, <laughs> um, but to answer your question, uh, I really, at this moment in time, I would say I really love everything that I do, all the shows that I do. If I go into a show thinking, okay, this one is just okay, it's not great, but they hired me, I'll do the best I can. I end up leaving there thinking it's great, just swell, which is my best adjectives. It's swell because I have to commit to it a thousand percent. But I really love doing Chicago PD because I love the actors there, first of all. Mm. And secondly, because it is such an active show that's challenging to me as a director, makes me do stuff better, quicker, faster, more real than maybe other shows do. So that's at this point in my career, it's just, it engages me more and therefore I like doing it. Love that. And also it's a lot of the same team, a lot of the same people, I imagine, right? So we interview Jenny, we, I interview Jenny Rabbits from Jonathan Strauss casting uh-huh. and she has her hand in all the Chicago shows, but she also has a hand in like some of the other Dick Wolf productions as mm-hmm. well. So, you know, it's a, she does a lot of same law and order. Yeah, exactly. Organized crime and the other ones. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and she also loves it. She loves all of those. So I, I love that there's, you know a great environment, if you will, for, for those shows, it seems like lovely. So we're, we're almost towards the end of this. I wanted to do a quick lightning round on some of the shows that I love that you've done just to kind of give me an idea of like what you thought of that show. So Beverly Hills 902, and now you did 14 episodes of, so I'd love to ask you what comes to mind when I say that. Innocence is what comes to mind. We were all so young and also untried and we were shooting in a warehouse in Van Nuys and I was there at the very beginning. I think I did episode four of season one. Nobody had any idea that it would become what it did. 
And then I was with it for a long time and watched it become this phenomenon. It was an interesting journey to go on. I did love all those actors a lot. And we all sort of grew together, you know, grew up together is what I should say. Oh, it's so great. There's like a, yeah, like an element of almost like a school is in the sense that like, you you know, mm-hmm. there's a, an element of growing up together. That's great. Yes. Uh, what about One Tree Hill? Mm-hmm. I was a huge fan of One Tree Hill. So I have to ask. Really? And I know that, yeah. Yeah. Um, I liked about that show in particular was it shot in Wilmington, North Carolina, and it was it wasn't Hollywood. It was Wilmington. And so there was this little bubble around it. Again, loved the actors, loved the producers of it. It felt like it was exploring issues that 90210 had explored a decade before. And those were important things, you know, young adulthood. And I liked exploring those story-wise and in performance. So it was engaging in that way. Uh, another favorite show is Gilmore Girls. You did three episodes of that. What were your mm-hmm. thoughts on that show? That was on the uh, on the Warner Brothers lot. And there's something so nice about that show. And then later on, I did Pretty Little Liars, which was in the same vein, which was, it was all on stage or on the back lot. So it felt mm-hmm. very protected you weren't out on the street having to deal with traffic and bystanders and noise noise and stuff it felt well I I guess I keep coming back to this concept it felt like you were in a bubble but the bubble was a studio lot so you'd walk by a stage where it had a plaque that said you know Casablanca shot here so it made me feel like I was part of a tradition of Hollywood filmmaking studios that was really, really great. Cool. Yeah. I love that. What about you did one episode of Grey's Anatomy? Were you mm-hmm. a fan of working on that show? You did a lot of, you did a lot of private practice episodes, station mm-hmm. 19, you know, do you like that world? What, what, do you, what comes Shondaland to world? Shondaland world. Yeah. Yes. And no, I mean, I loved doing private practice. Actually, Mark Tinker was the producing director, director on it. And as you know, he was the first producer that I worked for going back to the white shadow. Yeah. So there was a a warmth about it because of that. And I remember directing an episode that featured Audra McDonald's character. And I really, really thought she should win an Emmy for it because her work was so extraordinary. That's the level of, you know, actor you get to work with when you work in Shondaland. Yeah. So there's great joy in that. You know, you leave at the end of the day thinking, wow, we did some really good stuff today. It wasn't basic it wasn't okay it was superb and mm. that's just a great feeling Oof, love that all right i'll do one more i'm gonna do something a little different the originals that's another like mm-hmm. it was on cw at the time but it's a little different of a show so you did a few episodes of the originals what was your take on that yeah and i was the producing director on it for a season right. well i came away from it saying i'll never 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 do horror again Mm. Um, only because it was a lot of night shooting and blood and special effects and but because it was stories you know it was good versus evil primarily but evil would win more often than good because you know if you're dealing with it's a show you need more stories 
And you're dealing with werewolves and witches and, you know, vampires, vampires. Yeah. And I personally, I'm very grateful to Michael Narducci, who the showrunner who gave me that job. And, and I loved learning on that show to be a producer director, but I don't personally, we relate to horror stories and I don't really want to put that energetically out into the world. Love it. I, I completely understand that. Do you, so you're more, I feel like I'm in going through IMDb and just hearing you, it just seems like a lot of procedurals and dramas are just sort of more interesting to you. What's interesting is any story that I, as a human being can relate to, and therefore the audience as the humanity of it, we can all relate to. Like I just said, good versus evil, love versus hate, striving versus failing. I just like to tell stories really that are about being authentic and good and caring. And, you know, we all suffer sometimes and we all fall into crevices and cracks and we have to find our way out. And I think those kind of stories I respond to and procedurals in particular, because they start with something bad has happened. Now, how are we going to fix it? I, I, I just, I, maybe I'm too, maybe I like to tie a bow on stories and maybe that's not particularly, it's kind of elemental, but on the same, by the same token, it's what we all deal with. Right. And it's important, like you said earlier, to have a perspective and to have an opinion and, you know, that's important. I think it's good that you have that and you know yourself and you know what you like and Mm -hmm. You develop that over time, right? As you sort of said, but okay. So the last question I ask people is what is your current definition of success? Doing what I love to do, getting to do it, getting to, to tell a story from two different perspectives. One, to work with actors, to get the most authentic performance possible. And secondly, with camera to show that performance or performances, it's, such a creatively stimulating I look back to when I was a kid I used to read fairy tales all the time I've read every fairy tale there is Mm. and I think that's what I still do is is once upon a time this happened and then a bad thing happened and then the good person had to had to overcome what the bad thing was and then it ends happily ever after so that's the kind of story I like to tell I love that Thank you so much for being on this podcast, for answering all my questions and You're for so being welcome. a mentor to so many. You're very welcome. And thanks for caring, talking to people and putting it out in the world. I really appreciate you. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you haven't yet, do me a favor, drop a five-star review, follow on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, and find me on Instagram. I'm at at Michelle Simone Miller and at Mentors on the Mic. Share this in your stories. Let me know what you think. Share it with a friend, and I'll see you next time.